You're in the place where mysteries and the missing meet. Where conspiracies lurk around every corner. Welcome to the Deep Dark Truth. Welcome back to the Deep Dark Truth. I'm Mo, and this is going to be our first updates mini-sode in the Gabby Petito case. We've tried to let updates stack up a little bit as there are so many updates daily, and it gives us time to have them be verified by law enforcement and secondary sources. At this time, we won't be speaking on a great deal of speculation or unconfirmed information. We feel a great responsibility to try our hardest to not contribute to the problem of misinformation floating around in this case. This is a true crime case, so as per our homebrew rules, you will not be hearing sponsorships during any of these episodes. I'm sure you will miss Chip's HelloFresh voiceover. There will be three minutes of audio from the second body cam and two 911 calls included in today's episode, including one from a hiker who believes that he saw Brian Laundrie off the Appalachian Trail. We will also cover the newest information regarding Cassie Laundrie and the Schmidt Petito family's appearance on the Dr. Phil show. Links to all of these, as well as the Gabby Petito Foundation, are in the show notes. They're currently having a bracelet fundraiser if you'd like to go and support them. These are the updates from September 20th, to October 7th, 2021. If you recall from our previous episode that was released two weeks ago, we discussed an event that happened on August 12th, 2021, where a witness outside the Moonflower Co-op called 911 on Gabby and Brian. The police were able to interview another witness outside the Moonflower Co-op named Christopher, but the original 911 caller was no longer present on the scene. Since our last episode, that 911 call was released. Let's listen to it right now. Grant County Sheriff's Office. Were you able to get a description of the intoxication? Hi, can you hear me, sir? Yeah, I can hear you. Hi, uh, I'm calling. I'm right on the corner of Main Street by Moonflower, and we're driving by, and I'd like to report a domestic dispute in Florida with a white van, Florida license plate, white land, gentleman, Where's about it five, six beard. They just drove off. They're going down Main Street. They made a uh, a right onto Main Street from Moonflower. Or what were they doing? But um, what do you say? What were they doing? Uh, we drove by and the gentleman was slapping the girl. He was slapping her. Yes, and then we stopped. They ran up and down the sidewalk. He proceeded to hit her. Hopped in the car, and they drove off. Okay, you said um, it's a white van. White van. I give you the. I give you the license plate. If you give me one sec, I took okay. a picture of it. What kind of white van? Like a big one? Um, it, it was a smaller van with the license plate of, it was white, Florida license plate QFT G03. It was, the make was a Ford, model was transit, black ladder on the passenger side. Black ladder, uh, passenger kind of. side. White Ford Transit. White Ford Transit. Okay, what's your name? And where did they... So they turned... They headed south on Main Street from Moonflower Market? Correct. They made the right turn. Oh, so they went north. North. Yeah, sorry, I'm not from around here. Okay, are you so you're right there by the post office? Right across the street, yep. Okay, and, and when they t- 
turned onto Main Street, they went right or left? Right. Right, so they went north. North on Main. All right, I will let somebody know. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Bye. The information from the 911 call, when added to the previous witness statement and the body cam footage, paints a different picture of the situation. At the very least, it changes the context of why Gabby may have been so deeply upset throughout the body cam footage. And it makes us question things such as, why didn't Gabby share this information with police? And was Gabby too fearful to share information with the police? But that issue becomes further complicated. The Independent released an article on October 4th discussing that Moab police were accused of covering up the initial body cam footage that was released. Two weeks after the initial video was released, the Moab Police Department released a video from a second officer where Gabby talks more in detail about the events of August 12th. In this video, the officer tells Gabby that according to what Brian has said and both of the witnesses paired with what Gabby is saying herself, that everyone is indicating that she's the primary aggressor, which isn't quite true because we know the initial 911 call says that Brian is hitting her. And the second said more that she was trying to claw her way into the van that she legally owns. Because of a statement like this, we don't know anything that might have influenced what Gabby decided to tell the police and what she felt safe saying. Gabby does say that she slapped Brian first after he repeatedly told her to shut up and that Brian grabbed her face and dug his nails into her face enough that there was a scratch down her face that she complains burns. She also describes him locking her out of the van without any of her belongings. We have a three-minute clip that we're going to play right now from that body cam footage. If you have seen it, feel free to fast forward. If you would like to watch the entirety of the video, that is, of course, in our sources. I was just really stressed this morning trying to get a lot of work done, and I was apologizing to him. I had thrown a bunch of stuff in the back. All our bags are back there. I was just apologizing. I was like, I'm sorry that I get so stressed out. I have OCD and I was just like organizing stuff and sometimes I just have a mean attitude but I'm not trying to be mean about straightening things up and stuff so I was just apologizing but I guess I said it in like a mean tone and he got really frustrated with me and he walked me out of the car and told me to go take a breather but I didn't want to take a breather because I wanted to get going we're out of water. So it kind of made you more upset. <laughs> yeah, it didn't help calm you, it made you more upset. Yeah. And, so then what happened? And, um, so I, I, our goal was to come here and come refill our water. Are you guys um, living out, out of the van right now on travels? Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, so it was just, it was just really. So what happened after he locked you out? So you take a uh, breather. Well, he walked away to go take his own breather, and but I wanted to sit in the car. There was all my stuff was in the car. I had to yeah. on my bag. I had, so I was working on something at the moment in the car. And, Told me to just relax for a second, and I I didn't want to relax, so I got I got mad. And um, mad. Yeah, it happens. Then what happened? Okay. And, then, and then I told him to drive, get water. Yeah. Is there something on your cheek here? Looks like did, did you get did you get hit in the face? Um, kind of looks like something like hit you in the face. And then over on your arm, shoulder. Right here? That's new, huh? 
have a new mark? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Can I see the other side of your face? Yes. So, what happened here and here? Um, I, I'm not sure it was a... Yeah, so I was just trying to get in the back of the car and the backpack So the backpack gotcha? So there's two people that came to us and told us that they saw him hit you. There's two people saying that they saw him punch you. We just independent witnesses by Moonflower. Well, to be honest, I definitely hit him first. Where'd you hit him? I slapped him. You slapped him first? And then what, you saw his face? How many times did you slap him? And then what? And his reaction was to do what? He just grabbed you. Did he? Did he hit you though? I mean, I mean, it's okay if you're saying you hit him, and then I understand if he hit you, but we want to know the truth if he actually hit you. Because you know. I guess. Yeah, but I first. Where did he hit you? Don't don't worry. Just be honest. He grabbed my face. Like, I guess. He didn't like hit me in the face. Like he didn't like. Did he slap your face or what? Well, like he like grabbed like with his nail, and I guess that's why it was. I didn't really have a cut right here, so I could feel it. Yeah. Especially the burns. But uh, okay. So has he been drinking? No, we don't drink. Okay. What was up with his driving? I this officer said he hit a curb. I I I hit him. While you're driving? Well, he was driving. While he was driving, you were hitting him. Well, not. A lot, but yeah. And that was distracting him while he's driving? Are you not, Only for like a second. Only because I saw him, I saw the light come on and I like kind of like this. Some other updates that have happened within the last few weeks, even though they seem like they happened forever ago. The manner of death for Gabby was determined a homicide, which makes this now a murder investigation. A search warrant was executed at the Laundry family home, where the police spent several hours inside of the home. A federal arrest warrant has been issued for Brian Laundry, but not for the murder of Gabby Petito. Instead, it was for Brian's accessing of two accounts not owned by him in the days following Gabby's disappearance. Because those charges can span multiple states, that arrest warrant is federal. Brian has not yet been located, despite the Carlton Reserve entering its third week of being searched. We're led to believe that they are definitely searching for Brian, but there is a heavy amount of speculation out there that they are looking for possible evidence that may have been left on the reserve. As I said, the manner of death for Gabby Petito has been determined homicide. However, the cause of death has not yet been determined and released and can take several weeks. What I would like to hear is the time of death. For the police to have ruled Gabby's death a homicide so quickly, that means that there was apparent evidence just from her physical state that indicated homicide. The time of death, along with data, should be able to tell us a lot about who she was with and what she was doing digitally right before her murder. Now let's get into this strange hiccup in the case, the saga of the Silver Mustang. During his parents' meeting with the police, they informed the police that the last time that they had seen Brian was on Tuesday, September 14th. The next day, Wednesday the 15th, they said that they received a call from the local police informing them that the vehicle was parked and needed to be moved. 
For further clarification, this is a different police department than the Northport Police Department, and no one was aware that Brian was using this vehicle. They also said that they left the car there overnight, hoping that Brian would come back to the vehicle. But when that didn't happen, they became concerned, and they ended up going to pick up the vehicle so that it wasn't ticketed. But remember in the last episode when we talked about how a WFLA reporter said that the Silver Mustang appeared on Wednesday morning, not Thursday morning when Brian's parents would have went to go get it. Well, as it turns out, Brian's parents had recanted their previous statement saying that they were mistaken. And in fact, Brian left on Monday. They were contacted on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, they brought the car home. The Laundry's family attorney, Stephen Bertolino, said the following in his statement. Quote, the Laundry's were basing the date Brian left on their recollection of certain events. Upon further communication with the FBI and confirmation of the Mustang being at the Laundry residence on Wednesday, September 15th, we now believe the day Brian left to hike in the preserve was on Monday, September 13th. While it has not been confirmed, it appears that the FBI contacted the laundries because they had evidence that the car was in fact in the driveway on Wednesday, September 15th. We also learned that the car was actually parked about 16 miles from the Carlton Reserve where the police have been searching. But instead, in Mayakahachi Creek Environmental Park, the park and the reserve are connected via a 12-mile trail that police believe Brian would have used. The police have also found a campsite, but there is no telling whether or not that campsite is in fact connected with Brian Laundry. But as of now, we've heard of no sightings of Brian at the reserve. That doesn't mean that there haven't been any, just that the police haven't verified in the affirmative. But it is entirely possible that Brian was never at the reserve other than to drop off the vehicle. We also got information about a new text message that was revealed to us that concerned Gabby's mother. This text seemed to set off warning bells in Gabby's mother, Nicole Schmidt's head. On August 27th, she received a text from Gabby's phone that said, Can you help Stan? I just keep getting his voicemails and missed calls. This reference to Stan is allegedly regarding Gabby's grandfather. But according to Nicole Schmidt, Gabby never called her grandfather Stan. The initial speculation was, how does somebody mess up so badly that would know Gabby's grandfather's first name? but would refer to him by his first name. But there is a chance that Gabby sent this text message to be suspicious, to give her mother an idea that she felt something was wrong. In fact, it's a thing my mom does. If I were to text my mom something out of the blue that seems strange, my mom will call me directly on the phone to make sure that I'm okay and that it's not some sort of coded message. We also received news of a family camping trip. The Daily Mail obtained some official records that Roberta Laundry, Brian's mother, switched her two-person camping trip at Fort DeSoto Park, which was originally planned for September 1st through the 3rd, to a three-person trip from September 6th to the 8th. This change was allegedly made on September 1st when Brian arrived home. We also learned that Brian's sister, Cassie, came to Fort DeSoto on September 6th during that family camping trip. She also saw Brian on September 1st. This led people to becoming 
big mad with Cassie Laundrie. It caused a lot of backlash for her because during previous interviews, it seemed as though she hadn't talked to Brian at all since he had come home. She clarified that she told the police on September 11th and the police had known the entire time about this camping trip and that the question posed to her was what is the strangest thing about this entire experience and it was that she hadn't been able to talk to Brian. The clarification then was that since Gabby had been reported missing, Brian hadn't taken her calls or called her back. In fact, she went on to say while talking with protesters in her front yard that she hadn't even spoken with her parents, that the attorney had advised against them communicating in any way, and that her family's attorney did not in any way represent her. She told the protesters that she had nothing to hide, she had no reason to have a lawyer, and that her silence on certain issues and things that have been omitted have been omitted because the FBI and the police told her not to speak about them. I think the backlash and the protesters outside of her house really caused her to end up going against it. She ended up talking to these protesters for about 20 minutes. Uh, I think it's it's worth a listen to hear everything that she had to say during it. And I think she said a little bit more than the police or the FBI would have liked her to. A little bit more details about that family camping trip at Fort DeSoto, saying that her children were with her and she didn't realize anything was amiss or strange, and that she, in fact, didn't even know that Brian had came home with the van. When Brian showed up to her house on the 1st, he was accompanied by his parents in their silver Mustang. Cassie had never seen the van or known that Brian had possession of it at all without Gabby. She also went on to explain that a lot of the updates that we're getting, she's getting them at the same time since she hasn't been able to speak with Brian or her parents since all of this started. That included the discovery of the van at the Laundry family home. She then went on for a second interview on Good Morning America, where she said, quote, justice for Gabby would look like someone coming forward and telling the truth, unquote. And, quote, I don't know if my parents are involved. I think if they are, then they should come clean, unquote. We also got this strange twist where Dog the Bounty Hunter has become involved, Dog and his team started searching the islands surrounding DeSoto Park and said that the information that he received pointed in the direction that Brian and his parents arrived to camp, but only the parents left the park. Stephen Bertolino, the family's attorney, says that Brian and his parents all left the park together and returned home. If the police do in fact have visual confirmation of Brian at home, we can assume that that is true. But either way, we can't truly know that Brian was in the Northport area until September 14th, the last day that his parents allegedly saw him, simply because we cannot take the laundry's word for it. This is an ongoing case, and there's way too much motive at play. A neighbor of the family has said that the last time she saw Brian at the home was the weekend of September 10th, the same weekend Gabby was reported missing. And the Northport police confirmed that they did not visually see or speak with Brian on the day that Gabby was reported missing. The police were given attorney information and Brian's parents did not make him available for comments, questions, or inquiries. 
Danielle Garcia from Wink News posted to Twitter, we followed up with the public information officer and asked if police had ever laid eyes on Brian at all in September. Quote, we currently cannot comment on what investigators saw to preserve the integrity of the investigation. Those questions can be directed to at FBI Denver. So we know the police did not see Brian on the day that Gabby was reported missing. What we don't know is if the police saw Brian at all in the month of September. A spokesman for the Northport Police Department has also said, quote, just because we didn't see him that night doesn't mean we never saw him, unquote. Still, this was in response to scrutiny of Brian evading law enforcement and law enforcement not knowing where Brian was. So it is hard to say at this juncture when the last actual confirmed sighting of Brian was. Dog the Bounty Hunter also discovered a freshly used camp that had been made in those surrounding islands, and his team turned over a discarded can of Monster Energy drink that was found at that camp for potential DNA analysis to see if it is a match indeed for Brian. At some point, someone hired a plane to fly a banner around the islands that said Aloha Brian, dog. Dog has publicly stated on his verified Twitter page that that was not, in fact, him or his team. A very new piece of information that just came out today and is starting to be discussed is a hiker of the Appalachian Trail named Dennis Davis. Dennis has come forward to say that he believes he spoke with Laundry on Saturday, October 2nd, near the North Carolina-Tennessee border at the Davenport Gap parking lot. He says a man in a truck flagged him down by flashing his lights and that the man told him that he was lost and trying to get to California because he and his girlfriend had a fight and that she called him and told him that she loves him and he had to get to California to see her. This struck Dennis as odd, both because California is a long way away from this section of the AT to be asking passersby for directions to California and because the man's appearance led him to think that he was, quote, messed up, perhaps on some sort of substance. Dennis told this man that he could take I-40, but the man then said that he was going to continue down the country road that he was on and that he believed that it would get him to California. Dennis at this point did not know what Brian Laundry looked like, but he thought that this encounter was strange enough to not stay in the parking lot to sleep like he had planned. After leaving the parking lot and ruminating on this bizarre interaction for a few moments, he decided to get off the road and look up a picture of Brian, which led him to believe that Brian was in fact the man that he had just seen. Facial hair growth was similar to some of the pictures he was seeing of him. He then called the FBI. 911 in Tennessee, and 911 in North Carolina. He has since only had the follow-up with the police in North Carolina and was allegedly told that officers dispatched someone to the scene. That was part of a more in-depth analysis during an interview with Fox, but right now we're going to listen to his 911 call. Hey, we're counting 911. What's the location of your emergency? Um, well, I'm, I'm on the highway right now, but um, I, I ran into... Brian Lauer, just a little while ago. Okay, where did you see him at? Um, I was, I was at the parking lot for the Appalachian Trail on the north side of on Waterville Road. Okay, and. 
just on Waterville, or did you see him near a house? Could you see a mailbox? He was he was driving a truck, and I stopped and spoke talked to him. Was a white truck. I think it was a Ford F one fifty. I'm not a hundred percent sure of that. And it was kind of a, a newer model. It wasn't like an old beater. It was a, a newer truck. Okay. And what makes you say that it was him? I was I was ter- making a U-turn and in the road, and he came up behind me, and he slowed down and kind of flashed his lights, like telling me, oh, go ahead and go, and I'm going to wait for you. And as I turned around and I'm coming back by him, he's waving his arm out of out of his truck, like for me to slow down. And I pull up next to him. I'm getting ready to go through the tunnel here. Hold on one second. Okay. Can you still can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So when I stopped and I I, I was. I think I lost you. And I was. He was he was talking wild. He to, he said that his girlfriend loved him and he had to go out to California to see her. And he was asking me how to get to California. And I said, well, you can get on I-40 right there and drive west and you'll get there. And he said, no, I think I can go this way and kind of left. But he was acting funny. And I wasn't sure about what he looked like. And then I got, I went and parked and pull, pulled up the photographs of him. And I'm 99.99% sure that was him. Okay. Well, like I said, I'm going to pass this along to my sergeant, okay? All right. I'll meet somebody out there if they want to. Um, I'm telling you it was him. Okay. Well, like I said, I'll pass this along. All right. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Note that in the 911 call, Dennis refers to Brian Laundry as Brian Lauer, as he had just heard stirrings about the case, but didn't really know a whole lot of information concerning it. If Dennis Davis did, in fact, encounter Brian, there are a couple of similarities that we can draw from the Miranda Baker encounter and this encounter. Both interactions are not just surface encounters. They're not just an ask for directions, ask for a drive here, etc. Instead, there is an entire story woven into these encounters. Whether these stories are misdirections, whether these stories are the seeds of a potential alibi, whether they're just nervous talking, That's only something that can be speculated on. But the two encounters, when you look at the actual interactions, are frighteningly similar. It also should be noted that Brian has spent a great deal of time on the Appalachian Trail, and it has been speculated for weeks that he could return to the trail, simply because there's not a lot of encounters that you have with other people. It's very easy to remain more anonymous. And the Appalachian Trail is over 2,000 miles. That's not even including the surrounding areas of the trail. Just the trail from point A to point B is 2,190 miles. Again, if Dennis's encounter turns out to have, in fact, been with Brian Laundry, that would mean that Brian is in possession of a vehicle, a white truck 
that Dennis believes was an later make Ford F-150. On the 5th and 6th of October, the Petito and Schmidt families, Joe and Tara Petito and Nicole and Jim Schmidt, went on the Dr. Phil show and we got a little bit more and we got a little bit more filled out information from that interview. Jim talked about how he was in Wyoming and identified some clothing of Gabby's and that he was the one that broke the news to the rest of his family. If you recall in the last episode, we talked about how Jim Schmidt had been boots on the ground searching for Gabby in Wyoming. It just so happened that the item of clothing that they needed him to identify was one of Gabby's favorite items of clothing. And also it was a local brand. And so it was locally sourced and they could pinpoint exactly where that clothing had come from. They also talked about how when Gabby was first missing and Nicole and Joe were trying to get a hold of Brian's parents, that they initially believed that both Brian and Gabby were missing and that they hadn't received a response even after they had called and texted that they were going to be going to the police to find their daughter. They talked about the way that Gabby's body was discovered, and that it was about a five-minute walk from where the van had previously been parked next to a homemade fire ring that had been made with rocks. This isn't a heavily trafficked area. You actually have to cross a small creek bed over sticks and logs and things to get to the other side where Gabby was found. Dr. Phil called on the laundries to participate more in the investigation and give up any information that they know. And Joe Petito said something very poignant, I think, to how people are interpreting the situation. Joe said, quote, we couldn't find Gabby. What did we do to find Gabby? I mean, we did anything to find Gabby. We talked to everyone we could, got out in front of as many cameras as we could. What did they do to find Brian? They called the cops. Haven't done a thing since. I haven't seen them on any TV shows find Brian. Why do you think that is? Unquote. Now, I can't tell you whether or not the Laundries watched that two-part special from Dr. Phil. But what I can tell you, that as of today... October 7th, Brian Laundrie's father, Chris, has joined the search for him at the Carlton Preserve. And of course, the Laundrie family attorney, Stephen Bernalito, had a statement for that. Quote, today Chris Laundrie accompanied members of law enforcement into the reserve to show them the trails and places Chris and Brian have hiked and which Brian was known to frequent. There are no discoveries, but the effort was helpful to all. It seems the water in the preserve is receding and certain areas are more accessible to search. So as of right now, that's where we are. We're waiting on the time of death and cause of death for Gabby. Brian has not yet been located, whether that is in the Carlton Reserve or somewhere off the Appalachian Trail or anywhere else for that matter. The Schmidt and Petito families have formed the Gabby Petito Foundation where they hope to support locating missing persons and to provide aid to organizations who assist victims of domestic violence. The link to their website is in our show notes. We're not going to put it in the sources link. We're going to put it right in the show notes so it's quick and easy for you to find if you'd like to head over there and buy a bracelet to show your support. As always, questions, comments, concerns, you can reach us at the tip line at 313-355-3411 
or email us at thedeepdarktruthpodcast at gmail.com. For the month of October, we'll be releasing at least one episode every single week, so make sure that you hit subscribe, and we'll see you next time. You just listened to the Deep Dark Truth Podcast. See you next time, and remember, your local cryptids want to meet you.